Hello, everyone. Please welcome the fabulous Namila Jemshed to the Climate Action Change podcast. So I'm going to introduce Nabila herself, but she is a public policy specialist at the United Nations, and we are super happy to have her today. Hello, Nabila. Hi, Celeste, um, and everyone who's uh, tuning in. It is an extraordinary privilege to talk to you about some very interesting issues today. So thank you for having me on. We are extremely, extremely happy. We have a couple of questions for you. So everyone, please get excited. So the first question is, as we know, as we know, the goal of global governance, uh, roughly defined, is to provide global public goods, particularly peace and security, justice and mediation, systems for conflict, functioning markets, and unified standards for trade and industry. Now, we also know that your intergovernmental sector has included public policy specialists with the United Nations Resident Coordinations Office in India, political affairs specialists, and in the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in The Hague. So we want to know a bit more about what is your opinion on the future of global governance? Um, I think that's a very interesting question given our current circumstances. Um, it is an extraordinary year. I don't just mean um, in terms of us confronting what is probably one of the biggest global catastrophic risks that we've had in our lifetimes or even in the last century, which is the pandemic of COVID-19. But even before the pandemic of COVID-19 had hit, um, there were so many changes that were occurring around us, geopolitical, economic, uh, the changing face of globalization, the way that technology has linked us together. Um, so, for instance, you know, and this is also this also happens to be uh, the 75th anniversary of the signing of the United Nations Charter. Um, global governance is under great deal of introspection. Um, you know, there are questions about the efficacy of structures that we have set up for global cooperation. Um, there's also a lot of hope. Uh, because a lot of the problems that we're experiencing now are truly global in nature. Unlike back in 1945, when the Charter of the United Nations was signed, um, today we are confronted with problems that are global and truly borderless. Um, climate change is one of the biggest existential threats we're facing. It is one of those things that can only be governed through a process of global cooperation, whether that is through alliances of activists and movements, uh, whether that is businesses cooperating across borders, um, countries that are able to you know, uh, hammer out effective deals on reducing emissions, um, raising their ambitions on renewable energy. Um, and you know, a, a truly global challenge like climate change has now become um, even more urgent. Um, so you know, you, back in 1945, the, the world didn't look this way. Uh, now, not only do we have an awareness that climate change and the depletion of resources is a problem, uh, we've also been told by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, just last year that we only have about uh, you know, approximately a decade left from today uh, to keep temperature rises well under control. Um, we also have seen uh, the changing nature of war. When the UN Charter was signed, we were recovering from World War II and it was mainly an interstate conflict. Now we have intrastate conflicts, but we also have militant and terrorist movements. We have the crisis of migration that is caused by conflict, which displaces people and forces them out. Uh, so these, co these consequences of war are no longer limited to within their borders. Um, and we also have connections that we didn't have before. We have social media, we have a Facebook, uh, you know, 2.5 billion people today are on Facebook, for example. Um, so we are connected in ways that we didn't earlier. When we start thinking about global governance then, I think it has to be more than just about organizations. It has to be more than just about multilateral 
alliances between nation states. Um, the 1945 model of global governance has evolved in a number of ways. You know, there are, um, you said, for example, I'd worked in the OPCW in your introduction, which is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Um, and that's my, uh, you know, one of the examples that I use of, of, um, of describing smart regimes, um, an international agreement that was signed about two decades ago, but that has evolved so well with the changing circumstances, with the changing pressures on, uh, on uh, the, 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 the scenario with WMD proliferation around the world. Um, so for example, in the life of the OPCW, chemical weapons had not been used in a conflict situation. And then suddenly in the year 2013, uh, which was also a time that I happened to be working with the organization, we started hearing news of chemical weapons having been used in Syria. For the very first time, states were compelled to come together, not only to take a diplomatic stand, not only to respond politically to this problem, but also to devise new solutions. And therefore, that smart regime, which was earlier just a treaty, um, you know, had to evolve systems, for example, a joint UN OPCW fact-finding mission to go into Syria and find out whether chemical weapons had been used. Um, or, for example, a UN and OPCW joined, uh, you know, a, a mission to destroy chemical weapons that were taken out of Syria and then stationed on international waters uh, in the Mediterranean Sea and destroyed on a boat. So these were all solutions that had to be devised and evolved given given the, the circumstances of the time. And And the world has, it's not even the same world in terms of geopolitics that we had. So, um, for example, just the other day, I was looking at uh, the Forbes list of the, the biggest companies in the world in terms of their size and their economic clout. Um, and the four, in the, in the top 15 of that list, the four countries, uh, the only four countries uh, that appear in terms of where businesses are from on the, in the top 15 of the list are the United States, uh, China, Saudi Arabia and Japan. Now, if you look back at the origins of the multilateral system in the 1940s, or even the, the way the world was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, this was not the truth of, of the world that we had to confront. It's a changing, it's a multipolar world. Economic power now lies um, you know, in major corporations. Some of them have market value and asset value that you know, far outnumbers the entire wealth of entire countries um, or you know even at the subnational level the budgets of entire federal states or, or cities or even countries uh, in the developing parts of the world um, you know therefore our even our obligations and the trade-offs that we made to operationalize our solutions to these global problems for example the way we think about dealing with climate change um, has to be a devolved responsibility it can't just be a, 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 something for governments to look at or something for UN agencies to look at Climate change needs to be something that needs to be led from the front by businesses um, and their sustainability programs, not just as uh, you know, um, a foundation that's being set up or for you know, a green building that a company now has, but how economic and social uh, and, and governance um, is the, the ESG promise is driven through the core of the business itself. Um, and so global governance to me is going to change a lot. I think we are at a historic tipping point and not just because of the pandemic, not just because it's stolen $8.5 trillion from the economy, but because we've had so many of these international challenges in the recent years that now uh, global governance institutions need to look at and evolve in response to. Thank you so much. Wow, this is, um, we can see that you have plenty of experience in the sector. This is a wonderful answer and I think extremely insightful for everyone listening to this podcast. We want to follow up with another question. So 
And we know that you were posted to do an assignment with UN peacekeeping to Juba in South Sudan, consistently ranked one of the most dangerous conflicts in the world. So there you worked with the Joint Mission Analysis Center during the conflict of 2016 and on security and crisis reporting and analysis. So we want you to tell us a little bit more about global catastrophic risk and future-proofing economies. The, the idea of a global catastrophic risk um, um, is interesting. It's it's fairly recent in the in the in the policy uh, discourses. I think academics have been talking about catastrophic risk. Science fiction has been talking about global risks for a while now. But it's only now that uh, policymakers, international institutions, have started talking about risk management as a feature of global governance, but also looking at global risks as one event or an unfolding series of events that can impact millions of people all at once. Um, this is, there is no better year really to, to talk about global catastrophic risk than the year that we are all suffering uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, you know, one small virus uh, originating in one small part of the world and suddenly it's everybody's problem. It's, it's, it's not just a, a health challenge. It's not just, uh, you know, we're not, even, we're not just losing lives and people's well-being to this virus, but it has impacted approximately 1.6 billion people's livelihoods, those who are in the informal sector. Um, you know, it, it has robbed an entire generation of the opportunity, um, you know, to, to attend school. To, uh, it, it has set back development a few decades in parts of the world. It's set back our, flight for, our fight for climate change. Um, and I'm not just saying because activists are finding finding it harder to gather now in a responsible, socially distanced way, but also because now we're um, maybe as businesses a little more risk averse. Uh, and so it feels like, you know, a catastrophic risk of that scale is going to reprioritize. Now we're trying to build back better. Uh, we're trying to recover. So our first priority might be maybe to restore jobs. Um, to get factory floors working again, to get businesses up and running again, to help small businesses rebuild if they've lost everything. Um, and that's where our attention maybe is going to be. Um, but at the same time, I feel like the fact that we had this global risk, we had this global pandemic um, at the scale of the, the, the disaster that it has been, has also revealed to us that if we were not focusing on the small human security challenges, uh, if we had focused a little bit more on these human security challenges, I mean to say, we may have been able to respond to this disaster better. Um, and so, you know, the first thing really to think about is how global catastrophic risks are really made up of a sum of their parts. It's about, uh, it's about building resilience into systems from the get-go. When you don't have a pandemic, you are supposed to make sure your population has social protections, that you are able, um, you know, to, to operate a business in a way that, uh, you know, your staff has not lost all their jobs, that you're able to take those shocks in. Um, that, for example, uh, we needed to deal with other pressures on societies like climate change um, that, you know, uh, are continuing to affect. I mean, the pandemic has not put a pause on either the worst effects of climate change, um, you know, for, for which people who, for example, live in coastal communities are losing their livelihoods. Um, it has not put a pause to wars. It has not put a pause to humanitarian crises around the world. And so all of these things are part of what we imagine as, as these um, big risks. Um, and the other one, uh, the other big global catastrophic risk, um, you know, apart from climate change and pandemics uh, that I like to think about, and because a bit of my background has been in this work, um, is the threat of weapons of mass destruction. 
um, you know, we talk a lot about the nuclear threat um, and there has been a great deal of diplomacy and a lot of progress and a lot of setbacks to the, the elimination of nuclear weapons and that movement around the world. But there's also um, the very important um, aspect of looking at the, the chemical, the biological and the radiological world of, of um, WMD warfare, um, not just because you have a proliferation of non-state actors that have now become the main combatants and agents of warfare around the world, not just because you have, um, you know, terrorism is a huge problem in so many parts of the world, um, but also because we have seen the impact of, of a virus um, that it didn't really take much of an effort for, for it to uh, go around the world quite organically and quite on its own. Um, there are so many interconnections between us now that you can only think from the experience of COVID-19 that if someone wanted to launch a biological attack uh, or use a biological weapon in any situation, how challenging it would be for us to be able to mitigate the impact of that, to be able to hold it within a border. Um, and so now more than ever before, uh, we are looking at a problem uh, on which action has been a little slow. Uh, so speaking from the experience of the Chemical Weapons Convention, we know a lot of progress was made. Um, you know, the, the regime evolved. Uh, it, when it was confronted with a crisis, it was uniquely successful. There were so many examples we could learn from. Um, however, the, the progress of the Biological Weapons Convention has been very different because um, it was more challenging for states to agree to a ban on um, or, or restrictions on or safeguards on, um, you know, biological research, because it's so intertwined with the global health setup. So it's, you know, it's not easy to say, um, biological agents are mainly diseases, they are strains, they're viruses, right? And uh, when you try to get countries and, and health systems to put too many restrictions on that, um, it's not that easy. It's not that easy for to tell a country that you can't have stockpiles of a certain virus or a strain of a virus, uh, because it's, that's critical for healthcare responses in the country. It's critical for the development of vaccines, uh, you know, to contain all kinds of communicable diseases. And so progress on that has been a bit slow. But now that we have experienced a biological threat as a global catastrophic risk, um, you know, there are so many important lessons we can learn from our experience, whether it's fighting conflicts as, as peacekeepers, whether it is fighting WMDs in the Chemical Weapons Convention, um, or even in our, flight, uh, in our fights against climate change. There's so many important models that we can use uh, to look at WMDs and, and the kinds of WMDs that could threaten us in the future. Thank you so much, Nabila. This is so, so, so interesting. I cannot thank you enough for being here today. Uh, we have a, another question, a bit of a spin-off on this that you've already mentioned a bit, is to know a bit more about the linkages between climate, global health, and security and policy lessons, uh, bringing it all together. Um, yes, and, and, and as, I, as I said in my uh, response to the question before this, um, to me, it was personally very fascinating uh, from a WMD background. I've done a lot of work, you know, academically and professionally in the WMD sector. Um, that when you know that the outbreak hit, many of the responses that countries embarked on and were supposed to embark on were security responses. Um, you know, the fallout of a chemical or a biological or nuclear weapon in any city, in any uh, center around the world would be very similar to the way that our first response was against the virus. You would have, uh, you know, it would impact travel. It would impact, uh, you know, exit and entry into that area, which has been impacted. Uh, you would immediately need to think about things like containment. 
of the of the of the whether it's radiation or whether it's a disease or whether it's a chemical uh, strain uh, you would have to think about containing it within certain groups of population you would have very quickly to ramp up your healthcare capacities so um, you know for example we've seen central park in new york turn into a major field hospital an absolutely surreal image um, but it is the kind of response that would occur uh, you know in in a place like new york or anywhere else if there was a security event um, so all of those uh, all of those measures very quickly came in place. Um, we also learned from, you know, the security sector that things like regulation of dangerous substances and hazards needs to be inbuilt into the way we do business and we, we manage marketplaces. So for example, um, you know, the, the model of industrial safety and security that we, we learned from the chemical weapons experience, which is that the chemical weapons regime is not just about disarming states or making sure that terrorists don't get access to chemical weapons. It's as much about working with industries that work with um, dangerous chemicals to make sure that they have the capacity to be safe and secure, uh, that they have the capacity to be able to keep their chemicals safe and secure in the event of, of, of a hazardous leak um, or any kind of an accident, industrial accident or security event, that they have the tools to be able to manage it very quickly. Because chemical weapons are not, um, it's not just a weapon that's developed in a lab. The definition of a chemical weapon really is any chemical that's used in a weapon through a delivery system. So something like chlorine, in fact, was one of the earliest chemical weapons. And chlorine is something, you know, in everything from our industries to our swimming pools to our fiber optics. I mean, chlorine is, it's common. It's in our household cleaning equipment. Um, and so, you know, we learned from that, that, for example, if there are wet markets, um, you know, for example, the one in Wuhan, where we know that we got the strain of this virus from an interaction of, you know, from maybe wildlife not being kept properly and interacting with each other and then wet market hygiene not being maintained properly. We can write that into the way that we organize ourselves if we start, we start with that security mindset. And that security mindset is not only critical to public health, uh, public health emergencies, it will be as critical going forward to deal with the climate emergency that we are currently experiencing. Um, because a lot of uh, conflict in the recent years has been directly related to the to the fallouts of climate change. I mean, whether it was something that, you know, was right up top in the news, like uh, Darfur, for example, in Sudan, where, you know, climate driven migration was responsible uh, in exacerbation of conflict, whether it is, you know, where resources are scarce or where, you know, um, there are struggles between communities for cattle herding space and, uh, you know, uh, water resources. Fighting occurs because of those existential crises make it that much uh, more difficult for, for people to coexist. And it can exacerbate ethnic divides, it can exacerbate political divides. And our responses then to climate change must also be or in, you know, um, in the corporate sector, uh, people tend to treat it as if this is something extra, that you know, when we talk about a Green New Deal, that it's something additional that's just going to put restrictions on businesses. It's going to put some restrictions on people's lifestyles, um, but it's extra. It's something that is long-term. It's in the future. Our grandchildren will benefit from it. 
but it's not. Our current security situation is threatened existentially by the fact that climate change occurs. And now many of our responses will then have to be informed um, by sort of having this, this mindset of um, the securitization of sectors like human development, like human security, like, like uh, climate change-driven migration, climate change-driven drought, um, conflict over resources. We already hear such you know, phrases like water can be the new oil. Um, and you know, that's the, and it already is in many parts of the world, it's become the root of, of, uh, of, of fighting. Um, and so you know, when we talk about, for example, peacekeeping, we need to be so aware of the environmental factors that can impact the outcomes and, and the way that a conflict might escalate in any situation. So all those three sectors have to be absolutely critical. They, we can't look at them in silos anymore. Um, and that also pertains to our, you know, the, our earlier conversation about the future of global governance. I don't think that um, you know, we can proceed with having absolutely separate sectors saying that this is the climate sector of the development development world or like a, you know a foundation associated with a with a corporate does climate change as one sector of work we will eventually find that it's so closely linked to livelihoods it's so closely linked to gender justice it's so closely linked to to the way we do public health i mean i i'm in new delhi currently and um, the impact of air pollution in this part of the world has been stark, it's made international headlines, it's been a huge public health emergency just to have the kind of, um, the air we're breathing. And you know, that, that the, the fact that we have that air is obviously because of human um, activities and because you know, of emissions. So yeah, all of those sectors are very closely interlinked. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so, so much, Namila. This is once again, really interesting answer to this question and really shows how everything is intellect, especially with uh, interlinked, especially with your last example, in terms of New Delhi, um, where the impact of, uh, of the pollution on the air and how it's had a huge effect uh, on people and therefore global health and, uh, and other aspects. So now moving on to my last question is with your breadth of experience, we want to know how do you navigate the multilateral space in organizations working in disarmament, peacekeeping and the sustainable development goals? Um, there, I mean, the, the multilateral space is fascinating and I just do want to begin by saying that I increasingly with the complexity and the global scale of our challenges, we have no choice but to navigate the multilateral space in some way or the other. It's not going to be um, a choice that we have. Global cooperation just will be the way that we go ahead. I mean, uh, you know, not just because we have so many organizations, not just because we have, you know, this huge and elaborate structure, which we call the United Nations and, you know, uh, the whole family of organizations, the, the G20, the G7, the, you know, um, the whole array of, of our conventions and treaties. But just because, I mean, we live in a world with 250 million migrants, um, you know, we are on the move all the time as a planet. We are not a people who is now, you know, provincial and, and sticks to one place. We are, we are uh, we are a migrant people as a world, as a global community and as global citizens now. Um, trade is now 25% of the global GDP. That's a huge number. I mean, the fact that our exchanges constitute 25%, a quarter of our entire economic value and, and rising, um, even though there has been a rise in nationalism and protectionism uh, in the recent years, and we've seen you know, the setbacks of COVID and, and the border closures, you know, might make countries look a little bit inwards and also, you know, geopolitical interest is making some countries look inwards. But the, it is inevitable that we are 
we are in this together that there is a tide of us, uh, you know, becoming a global culture and, and a world in the way that we haven't been in any century before us. Um, navigating spaces in a multilateral um, context in an organization so has become so much more than, um, you know, diplomacy and protocol. It's become about actively seeking solutions to these complex challenges. Um, it's a very interesting space to work in because, um, as I said, it's no longer just about uh, politicians will come to this executive council and they will make their speeches, um, you know, or countries sitting in New York are going to decide what happens. So when I work in a peacekeeping mission, I know how important, um, you know, local knowledge is the intelligence that we are able to provide as peacekeepers on the ground to the where the decisions are being made and actually be able to make those decisions. Um, the fact that we are, you know, that we are compelled to think about solutions to a conflict, not just as in terms of where the peace agreement is going, but for example, in the UN peacekeeping um, scenario in South Sudan, humanitarian work was such a huge part of our of our role there and our responsibilities, protecting a humanitarian convoy, um, you know, enabling human rights, uh, looking at gender-based violence, uh, you know, getting communities to disarm, uh, uh, you know, put down their weapons and, you know, speaking to, you know, the economic challenges and then the, the livelihood challenges uh, in that country. Uh, when I work in, uh, you know, on the sustainable development goals uh, with the United Nations in India, um, you know, you, again, you're, you become very, um, it's, it's again, a it's a solution finding work. It's not as easy as these are the SDGs and we need to just aggregate the data and put it in a dashboard, which is what a lot of people think sustainability is. But it's really about going down to the human stories of what the SDGs that the SDG framework means to the individual on the ground, what it means to a rural block, a community with a newly constructed toilet, uh, what it means to a girl who maybe her um, you know, access to education might be impeded by the, the, the circumstances around her. Um, and so it's been a very interesting um, area of work and what I think is a very critical area of work going forward. Um, I do look forward to more and more uh, young people joining the multilateral space um, and not just to think about it in terms of, you know, the UN and, and our organizations, but really to think about these forums as an opportunity to build coalitions of alliances, coalitions of businesses, coalitions of young people and movements and marches around the world uh, to be able to fulfill those promises of social justice justice and climate justice that we have set out for ourselves and to be able to really give them teeth we might need a new form of global governance that i hope that uh, you know going forward we will build thank you nabila for being here today this has been extremely insightful and we hope you will be on our podcast very soon thank you thank you so much it was my pleasure speaking with you today